Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Eatlands cover just 3% of the Earth's land surface, but store twice as much carbon as all the world's forests combined. To unravel the mysteries they hold for our environment, we must holistically study these ecosystems, according to Maru Lareko, research scientist for the Wild Bird Trust. Peatlands are, are, they are a necessity, completely. We need to look after them. We need to understand how they grow. Mapping effort needs to be something that really takes center stage right at the beginning, because it's usually an agglomeration of different studies from all over the world put into one. Esri CMO Mariana Cantor explores the function of the planet's peatlands and how they hold promise in countering climate change. Hello, Mauro, and welcome to the Esri and the Science Aware podcast. Hey, Mariana. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. In reading about your work, I learned a lot of new things, actually. And I did not know that the planet's peatlands, which is what we're going to be talking about, absorb more carbon than the planet's forests. In fact, peatlands cover about 3% of the Earth's land surface, much less than the forests, yet they store 30% of the total soil carbon. So talk to us about this. What are peatlands? How do they work to help combat climate change? Uh, And just educate us, please. Yeah, awesome. I mean, I love peatlands so much. It's what I did for my PhD. So A peatland is a wetland environment. The most critical component of a peatland is that the vegetation that's growing in a peatland supports peat soil. And peat soil is different from other soil types, specifically because it has a lot of carbon. And you you spoke about carbon in your question. And the reason why it's got so much carbon is because the conditions which form the peat allow for that carbon to be be stored in in what we call a carbon sink, a natural carbon sink. So we, we have wetland environments that are constantly waterlogged. This vegetation is growing. Uh, that vegetation doesn't get a chance to decompose properly because of the waterlogging. And you have this, this instance of a constant accumulation of, of carbon of, for every single year, every single season that the, that the peatland vegetation grows. And you get this super high organic rich soil that, that covers, like you say, just 3% of the earth. But stores 30% of its carbon uh, within the soil. So you mentioned a couple of terms, which I'd like you to help us understand better. Uh, what Waterlogged is one, uh, decomposing properly, and then a carbon sink. Weave these together. Yeah. Okay. So so water logging, so it's not too much water. It's, so it's not like flooded, inundated. It's just the right amount of water so that the vegetation can still continue to grow. But at the same time, what that water logging does, it, it creates an anoxic, anoxic environment, which is really an environment that's, that's defi- you know, doesn't have enough oxygen. And when plants die, if they're in an oxygen-rich environment, they get to decompose properly, right? And because it's, we have an anoxic environment, those, that decomposition cannot take place you know, fully. And so you have this deposition of, of, of high organic-rich material that never gets a chance to decompose and adding to the carbon store that, that is a peatland, that makes up a peatland soil. Carbon sinks, you know, it could be a natural or man-made uh, reservoir that absorbs more carbon than it emits. So it acts as a sink. So it really helps us to mitigate the buildup of anthropogenic CO2, which is really the, the gas that's responsible for global warming and climate change. So Carbon sinks play a crucial role in slowing down climate change by helping balance the the carbon cycle. So 
there's a number of different examples or natural carbon sinks that you can you can think of straight away. You mentioned forests, specifically like old growth forests, very intact forests that have been growing for hundreds and thousands of years. Oceans are another very important carbon sink, and they're actually absorbing the brunt of anthropogenic carbon dioxide. That's led to a number of different environmental consequences, such as ocean acidification, increased ocean temperatures and and damage to critical ecosystems like coral reefs, just to name a few. And then the other carbon sinks that we've we've touched on briefly, and the ones that I'm particularly interested in are soils, wetlands and and wetland environments. So those are the the peatlands that we're talking about. So even other natural environments such as grasslands, shrublands, which are all effective natural carbon sinks. So let's talk about that. Let's let's put this the importance of these vital wetlands in the global context. And also, I'd like to stress how little we collectively know about this. When the Paris Accord was signed uh, by all but two of the world's countries in 2015, with the goal of keeping the Earth's temperature rise below two degrees Celsius, the, the documents did not mention peatlands beyond a brief recommendation to take steps to preserve wetlands. What steps do governments need to take to protect this critical resource and what role can the scientific community play? And I think it just comes from that, you know, we, we sort of ingrained with this, this notion of forests, 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 plant trees, you know, save the forest. And that's, that's, that's definitely a, a positive thing. But there's also these other ecosystems that are receiving, that are not receiving as much attention as it were. So just to give an example from the IPCC, from their assessment reports, under normal uh, climate scenarios, under even low mitigation or even high mitigation climate scenarios, these natural carbon sinks are, are going to be less effective at, at uh, storing carbon into the future. So what we'll have is a sort of less capable carbon sink in the form of oceans. In, in this example, all of these natural carbon sinks are going to be less effective into the future. And so what it means is that carbon sinks are slowly but surely, I think probably too slowly, getting the recognition that they need to in order for us to to mitigate climate change and and it's a very unique environment because you know you you spoke about we spoke about sinks carbon sinks and we spoke about peatlands having more carbon in terms of density than a forest and you combine all the for, the carbon in forests it doesn't even compare to what what's contained in in a peatland we talk about carbon sinks it can actually become a carbon source so if you damage peatlands, if they are not as waterlogged as they should be, if they get burnt, if they get converted to a different land cover type, you know, that carbon sink becomes a carbon source. So there is really a lot of confusion. And I think you mentioned governments and you mentioned scientists. Amongst the scientists, what I've noticed is that there's not an agreement on on a lot of different things that we need to do. There's, there's different priorities. You know, in the Northern Hemisphere, there's prioritizing restoration, whereas in the tropics, we still don't even map. We haven't even mapped them all. So we're at different stages. And then when it comes to government as well, uh, there's no sort of standard definition. There's no sort of standard metrics for to, to quantify and measure, you know, what's the state of the peatlands? How are they growing? What is the dynamics of, of their growth? You know, can we, can we slowly unpack that? And I think that it's simply because there's so many different environments that can form peat, so many different vegetation types. But it's really like a smorgasbord of, of things all happening at once. 
and there's no sort of right solution or right way forward and and we sort of need to standardize that i think that would go you know go a long way for peatland research and on the side of 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 policy and government this resource can become a carbon source which sounds pretty scary in fact i learned that today the tropic forests like the amazon are taking up significantly less carbon than just a few decades ago. So in the 90s, the trees absorbed 17% of human-produced carbon dioxide, but only 20 years later, they are taking up you know, 6%. And what's even more scary is that the projection is that by the mid-2030s, the tropic forests would no longer absorb carbon dioxide, but start releasing it due to deforestation and increased fires. So not to sound too dramatic, but I think it's important to understand that the collection of these resources, like the oceans, these natural resources like forests and peatlands, can be a, you know, and have been a contributor to healthy, healthy environments and air and, and, and healthy life yet by absorbing carbon. Yet, if we don't, if we don't treat these resources with enough respect and understanding, they can become not only not sinks, but sources of carbon. Would you talk about how that can happen? And what are the implications of that? In various sort of conferences I've attended, I specifically ask about this exact question. So with high confidence, they stated that under scenarios with increasing CO2 emissions, the ocean and the land carbon sinks are projected to be less effective, exactly what you've just said, at, at accumulating CO2 in the atmosphere. What it means, put it simply, is that they're not as effective. And, and what you said is that, you know, they're not going to absorb as much. They did. They're actually going to start to emit they're going to start becoming carbon sources almost like another factory but this factory you know used to be a forest that used to sequester carbon now it's a it's a it's a it's a pollution making thing which is very scary as you say it's a ticking time bomb so they they predict they predicted to be less effective at, at storing at storing the carbon and what that means is there's going to be more available carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we know what that means right we're going to have increased temperatures, increased energy in the atmosphere, you know, worse storms and all the other things that happens with regards to global warming. So it is a really distressing thing to think about. You mentioned the Paris Agreement not recognizing or only, you know, recognizing it in a couple of lines that, you know, this important carbon sink, this peatlands are, are you know, you know, they're nice to have. They're not a necessity. They are a necessity completely. We need to look after them. We need to understand how they grow how effective they are at storing carbon and making sure that, that we can st- sustain that. So it's it's a reality for all carbon sinks, not just peatlands. You've worked on mapping and understanding and working to preserve and protect the peatlands and specifically in Angola. Angola. Would you talk about the methodology and the approach? What do we need to do to you know scale our understanding and our our investment in protecting these important resources. Yeah, so so definitely the first thing I would say is is the mapping effort needs to be something that really takes you know center stage right at the beginning. I struggle a lot with with you know looking at global maps of peatlands because it's usually an agglomeration of different studies from all over the world put into one and and these these authors do a really good job at, at producing these global maps. 
but there's still more to be mapped and we we can't protect something if we don't know where it is and we we can't you know we don't if we don't know where it is we haven't mapped it correctly so there's a bunch of different approaches that you can use in order to map peatlands and it really comes down to the depositional environment which you're looking at so is it near a river is it in a river floodplain is it in an old glacial moraine is it you know is it a specific type of vegetation that grows is it a certain climatic zone so you need to take in sort of a multi-sensory, a multi-proxy approach at trying to map them. First of all, you can use different satellite images. You can you can you can have a smorgasbord again of different tools at your disposal in order to map them properly. And I think that's the first step. You know, once you've mapped them, and and once you've quantified how much carbon it may store and how much carbon it stores every single year, or it sequesters every single year. You know, it might not sequester carbon. It might be a releasing carbon already because you haven't done the the sort of assessment of the peatland health. So there's 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 a bunch of steps, but definitely the first one would be the mapping effort. Then it's to quantify the carbon, and then it's to figure out if it's sequestering or if it's releasing carbon. So the the carbon flux is really an important thing to get to. But the first the first step is definitely the mapping effort. So the world's largest peatlands are in, you know, in several countries, Canada, Russia, Ireland, the US, Indonesia, in Argentina, and, and a few others. You decided to map the peatlands, the peatland deposits in the highlands of Angola. Why did you choose that area? And what's unique about uh, Angola peatlands? In terms of the peatlands, you know, you, you spoke about Canada and in North America, those are completely different climate, right? So boreal climate or mid-latitude climate, you know, really cold alpine, you know, and tropical zone of Africa is, 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 is really different to that. So you've got different vegetation types. In this case, the, the peatlands are growing adjacent to the rivers um, themselves. And, and these rivers are really important. I mean, these rivers are feeding into the Okavango Delta which is uh, a very, very important UNESCO World Heritage Site that supports wildlife um, in Botswana. And it's very unique in that the, the rivers themselves, they end in a desert. So they don't actually end in, in an ocean as we would expect. So, And that's all because of the peatlands and the relationship between the rivers and the peatlands and the Yokovango Delta downstream coming up from the from the, whole, from the Angolan Highlands. It's all sort of linked together. So there's this beautiful story that you can... You, you get to know straight away and you can see, you know, how in a lot of ways over thousands of years, I mean, we dated the the, the, the peatlands to be 8,000 years old. Those mechanisms have been in place for millennia. And, and those mechanisms are really the reason why we have these awesome environments, these wild places. So it was, it was a very interesting experience. And there's just so much more to learn simply because Angola, because of Angola's history, there hasn't been much research done uh, in that country, you know, not since the 1960s. 8,000 years old, is that common for peatlands? It's sort of middle ground, you know, you get you get older peatlands in, in South Africa. I know of some peatlands that are some, some 30,000 years old. But you also get much younger ones, you know, 1,000 years old or even a few hundred years. But for it to accumulate to a, 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 a you know, a decent depth that needs some time because it'd probably take a millimeter uh, of growth for a single year. So if you get a thousand millimeters, only one meter in a thousand years of growth. So you can imagine how long this takes for the peatlands to grow. And it's it's wow. not uncommon to find a place, you know, peatlands that are tens of thousands of years old. 
so we, we've talked about the effect of peatlands on on global climate change and and such but peatlands are also important to local economies and local animal populations could you talk about that in your research so definitely the local communities are making use of them at a sustainable scale you know they're not digging it up for example and burning it as they would have done in in Ireland all those years ago to keep warm and then when you talk about wildlife really the peatland is is critical to that because the flood that comes into the Okavango delta each year without those peatlands most likely the water would simply drain very quickly into the Okavango delta and uh, not be sustained throughout the year and sort of it's it's a desert so it would dry out really 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 quickly so because of the peatlands we have this constant flow of water throughout the year and that supports the Okavango Delta and all the megafauna that live there. You associate wetlands with a completely different climate you can't you don't imagine that a desert would be uh, right you know in proximity to wetlands but yet in the in where you work that's the case right? Yeah, absolutely. And then these transitional zones are very, very important. Very important for us to understand the dynamics of these transitional zones from a forest to a to a wetland or from a, a forest to a wetland into a dry desert area. And we need to understand if they're expanding or contracting. And it's 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 very possible. I mean, Africa has, you know, everything you can think of in terms of ecosystems. So you can find exactly that within the same drainage basin, a high, you know, an alpine area, forested area leading into a desert and also leading into, you know, creating a delta. So it's, it's, it's all possible and it makes for very interesting science. It makes for very interesting case studies. So in closing, I want to ask you, where is your research taking you next? Yeah, so, so I mean, we've got, a, you know, a couple of papers on to to try and redefine the peatland maps that I produced during my PhD. We're also looking at water towers in Africa and water towers, the Golden Highlands water tower as a, a very important water tower for Southern Africa. And in this case, a water tower, I don't mean that that wooden structure on top of a building. In New York City, I talk about a natural water tower. So we're trying to 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 catch up, you know, where the Northern Hemisphere has really got these high detailed maps on peatlands and water resources and important water areas, we're trying to catch up for Angola because of the historical nature of the country, the Angolan Civil War, the the War of Independence. There was really a curtain over this area that kept people out, you know, kept people out, kept scientists out, and now we're trying to catch up. So my work really pushes me in, in those directions, sort of the bigger questions around the importance of this area and really the importance of other areas throughout Southern Africa water towers related, peatland related, trying to connect the two would be a great thing as well. Mauro, thank you so much. It was a delightful conversation. Yeah, you're welcome. I had a, I had fun talking about peatlands as always. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Maru Lorenko for explaining the importance of understanding and preserving the world's peatlands. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.